Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's good word for us. Start into the passage. Before we start into the passage, I want to give you an update uh, on giving and especially surrounding our Gen 12 pledges for this year. Uh, in your bulletin, you already saw the, um, the giving update, but I think we might have that on the screen here as well. Yeah, so January, we started out a little slow in the year, but not by much, so let's make that a, a matter of prayer as we go forward this year. But our Gen 12 giving uh, is about $1,000 above even what we anticipated in our pledges, so, so that's great. Uh, you also got a reminder handout here about Gen 12 as you walked in. And if you don't know what this is, Gen 12 is our annual pledge that we make uh, to give above and beyond the normal operating costs of Northwake to help start new churches, send missionaries, love in our community, and so forth. And this year we're going to get to focus on a, some pretty exciting things like funding training for pastors in India, uh, doing some initial groundwork for hosting a free community medical clinic here at North Wake, and a whole bunch of other really exciting initiatives. So keep a lookout, both in your email, you should be getting an email today with all those reminders in it, and on social media as well. We're going to start highlighting some of those initiatives here about um, over the, once a week over the next few weeks. And on the Gen 12 numbers themselves, uh, so far this year, we've received pledges for $86,000, 688. And then the neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor pledge, 41,000, which is, which is awesome. And if the neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor pledge, those are monies that we pledge but keep in our pockets. It's money that we budget and steward to give away to someone that God brings across your path this year. So you're, you're praying that these monies you set aside, that God will bring someone in front of you that you could love and share with and meet their needs, and ultimately beyond just sharing your physical resources to also share the greatest resource we have, and that's the love of God in Jesus Christ. So that's what Gen 12 is about, and these numbers represent actually only 85 pledges make up this $85,000, $86,000. So there's plenty of room if you still want to get in, uh, the neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor pledge, that $41,000 represents about 45 pledges. So there's plenty of room. The water's great. If you want to get in, I know at the beginning of the year it's a busy time. Uh, you can use this and turn this into the, you can put in the offering boxes that are in the back on your way out, uh, or use the QR code and do all that online. So that's Gen 12 and giving generally. All right, so we're wrapping up. Uh, we're wrapping up our look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3 today, and um, I mentioned a couple of weeks back that these early chapters of Genesis serve in some ways 
It's like a big you are here star on the map, on the map of life. Genesis tells us where we're starting from, what we're starting with. It orients us, and it really gives us profound insight into the human condition. What are humans like? Where do we come from? Why are we the way that we are? You know, if we had a relationship status with our world, it would be, it's complicated. So, you know, on Facebook, uh, if you can select a relationship status on Facebook. So, on Facebook, I'm married to Ashley Cobb, but there are many other relationship status options, and one of them is simply, it's complicated. Instead of married to or in a relationship with so-and-so, you could just select, it's complicated with so-and-so, which is an interesting thing to put on social media, I think, but... Uh, Genesis explains why it's complicated and why we are complicated, why we're captivated by nature, and yet we struggle with it so mightily just to survive. Nature's our best friend and our worst enemy. Genesis explains why work can be so central to your life and so rewarding and yet really stressful all at the same time. It's exasperating. feels futile at times. As I heard one person say it, uh, we struggle with the dirt all of our life only to end up six feet under it in the end. The dirt always wins. <laughs> you know, um, even up against modern medicine, healthy lifestyle, plastic surgery, the dirt always wins. Genesis tells us why we both long for God and despise Him all at the same time. We're made for Him. Our hearts ache for Him, but we're cut off from Him, distant. We don't see Him. We don't live and walk in face-to-face -face fellowship with God, and honestly, part of us would rather keep it that way. Genesis tells you why. Genesis tells us why romance and relationships are both deeply fulfilling and incredibly frustrating. We are made for and long for love, but our deepest relationships, our closest relationships are also marked by selfishness and pain, perhaps by betrayal, abandonment, or abuse, and eventually always death. Genesis explains why we love our bodies and hate them all at the same time. Nakedness is both desirable in some ways and shameful in others. You know, we want to be proud of ourselves and proud of our lives, and yet we live with so much insecurity, shame. So we spend our lives at some level always bluffing and always hiding from God, from one another, even ourselves, because we don't like what we're going to see. Do you see what I mean when I say we're complicated? This is where we all start. Genesis gives us profound insight into our condition as people. It tells us where we are on the map of life, made for God, for love, beauty, wonder, and friendship, and yet experiencing pain, frustration, toil, sin, shame, and death. That's Genesis 1 through 3. Now, our passage for today, it's like this little epilogue that's at the end of Genesis 3. 
We're just, we're just looking at verses 20 to 24 today. You heard Melanie read more verses than that. And Jerry Lassiter preached on those the prior week, the really sad and awful verses about the consequences of sin and the curse that's on the world now. Thank you, Jerry, for preaching the sad and awful part. But with the epilogue, it's as if you begin to hear the faintest notes of a hopeful melody that will one day in the person of Jesus overtake the dissonance and minor chords of Genesis chapter 3 and bring them back into harmony with the original majestic theme of the world. And I really, I wish there was a soundtrack to the Bible where each major idea or theme that you run across, uh, if there was just a musical score that would start playing when you read that theme because it, it would show up in later places in the Bible. So Daniel, if you could start working on orchestrating that, that'd be really helpful for all of us. Um, but here, here, in our, here in our passage, we have three faint notes of promise that will one day all crescendo in Jesus Christ. Three notes of promise that will one day crescendo in Jesus Christ. A note of hope, a note of honor, and a note of home. Hope, honor, and home. And we're going to pause uh, at points in between each of those along the way today for brief moments of silence and prayer so that you can stop and listen to these beautiful notes of promise played once again for us, even this day. So first, the note of hope. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, that's an interesting comment to make at this point, and it's always seemed a little out of place to me. And this is right on the heels of the man and the woman's epic failure of disobeying God. Remember, taking good and evil into their own hands and then hearing God's pronouncements of curse that are now upon the world. Why would the author include this comment about Adam, the man, giving the woman a name? Up until this point in the narrative, you've read her as being called Eve, but she's not called Eve until now. If you remember back in chapter 2, when God creates and presents the woman to the man, Adam simply calls her woman. He waxes poetic, perhaps bursting out in song. Remember, he says, this at last, my love. No, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So John Salehammer points out that this first name, woman, points to her origin and union with the man out of the man, origin and union. But her second name, Eve, points to her destiny. She will be the mother of all living. The word Eve is similar to the Hebrew word for life or living, kind of like the name Zoe, uh, which is taken from the Greek. What's Zoe about? Right, zoology, the study of life. So Adam names his wife Eve, life giver. Again, why would he call her this? Why would it happen right here? It sounds like a little bit earlier in this chapter, they may have been calling each other names that were not so kind. Just a few moments ago, we saw, we saw Adam blame shift the whole downfall of the human race onto Eve. The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit. So why the change here? He calls her life bringer or life giver, not death bringer. Why the new name? 
Well, it seems that Adam has found a glimmer of hope. Hope in the woman's offspring that she would bring life. As God said in verse 15 of our chapter, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise or crush. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, life is going to continue because of Eve. Just as she played a role in the downfall of the human race, so Eve will play a critical role in its restoration. So Adam's hope in this terrible mess is in the offspring of the woman. That's the first note of promise, some hope. So it's no wonder, you know, that the New Testament authors are so careful to stress that Jesus Christ was born of a woman. The virgin birth narratives make this really, really clear right on through Paul's gospel in Galatians 4 for one example. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, just think for a second. If you're Adam and Eve, think for a minute. How hopeless this first moment of sin and curse must have felt for them. I mean, they have just made the worst decision that possibly anyone has ever made, ever. And they know it. And they've severed their relationship with God. They've wrecked the world. And they're standing there left exposed and ashamed. It's no wonder they're hiding from God. I mean, they probably thought this was it. God was just going to strike them dead right there on the spot. There's no way out. There's no way back. There's no undo button to press. But in the fullness of time, God would provide a way through the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, for all those who are under the curse of sin. And apart from him, we're still just as helpless, just as hopeless as the first human couple. But Galatians says that in Jesus, we can be redeemed and adopted, brought back into fellowship with God and given hope for every situation. Adam's hope and our hope is in the offspring of Eve, Jesus Christ. And so the New City Catechism starts like this. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you walked in here today in a situation that just feels hopeless. You don't see a way forward, there is no way back, and you don't see a way out. And you're losing hope that there's anything good up ahead. Let me give you a moment now to pause and to pray in silence, to look at these words and to hear the note of hope played quietly for Adam and Eve, but loud and clear for us in Jesus Christ, that if you belong body and soul to him, then you do have hope in life and in death. Let's pause and pray in silence for just a moment. And then we'll continue.
Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Now the second note of promise, honor, the note of honor. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You remember that the first thing that the man and the woman notice, or the first thing that they know after eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is their own nakedness. I really like how Pastor Kevin Kim puts this, so I'm going to read a quote from him at length. It'll be on the screen. I'm sorry, I just couldn't find a way to say it better, and I didn't want to plagiarize. So, um, he says this, What's going on is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they could not bear transparency. They could not stand their nakedness. Nakedness is when you don't control what people see. Nakedness is when you cannot manage perception. Nakedness is when people see all the way in. Until you sin, there's no problem with that. Why was it that Adam and Eve suddenly couldn't stand being looked at? Why was it that they suddenly had to control what God saw and what each other saw? Why was it that they suddenly had to hide? Why was it that they suddenly had to cover up? Originally, Adam and Eve didn't mind what God saw. They didn't mind what each other saw. Originally, they were clothed or covered with moral beauty. They knew they were beautiful. They knew they were perfect. So they didn't mind being seen. But they were stained the minute they lost their righteousness, and they couldn't stand being seen. What did they do? They sewed fig leaves. They began to cover themselves. And one of the most profound things you can do is understand your life in light of Genesis 3. Look at your life. Ask yourself, why are some of us perfectionists? Why are some of us workaholics? Why are some of us so worried about our bodies and how we look? Why are some of us working ourselves to death in order to achieve? Some of us are starving ourselves to death in order to be beautiful. Why is that? You're covering your nakedness. You're trying to patch up your own righteousness and beauty and make up for that lost sense of righteousness and beauty. We are all hiding, every one of us. You see, to be naked is to be transparent, defenseless, fully exposed. And we don't like that. And so we compensate. And we patch together with fig leaves a highly curated, successful, maybe even spiritual persona. Or we make fig leaves of defensiveness and anger and we become sullen people, or we do both, all of the above. But sooner or later in life, our fig leaves will get ripped away and we'll be exposed for who we are. Uh, in the 2002 movie, The Emperor's Club, uh, Kevin Klein, he plays a beloved teacher named uh, William Hundert at a prestigious prep school. And throughout the film, Mr. Hundert, he tries to reform a brilliant but arrogant young man named Sedgwick Bell. Uh, but Sedgwick, he embarrasses Mr. Hundert by cheating in an academic competition. He doesn't get caught, but he doesn't nonetheless, called the Mr. Julius Caesar Contest. 25 years later, as Mr. Hundert is retiring, all the students return to have one last Mr. Julius Caesar contest, and that's Sedgwick there on the left. And he does extremely well in the contest again, but Mr. Hundert finds out that it's because he's cheating with an earpiece uh, in his ear to get the answers to the questions. Uh, 
But instead of calling him out on the spot in the competition, Mr. Hunter confronts him privately in the bathroom between the Mr. Julius Caesar sessions. He tries to expose Sedgwick and give him a chance to confess. But all he gets is an earful. Sedgwick gets defensive, and he just tears into Mr. Hunter. He says, who gives a rip about all your virtues? I mean, look at you. What do you have to show for yourself? I live in the real world where people do what they need to do to get what they really want. And if it's lying and cheating, then so be it. And just as soon as you think that Sedgwick has the last word and has told Mr. Hundred off for good, you hear the sound of a toilet flushing. And out walks Sedgwick's 10-year-old son. He heard everything his father has said. And with tears in his eyes, he walks out with no respect left for his dad. And Sedgwick has, has nothing to say for himself. He's totally exposed. No more fig leaves left. Nothing, there's nothing like your kids seeing your deepest flaws to sober you up. What about you? Have you ever been exposed like that? Maybe not caught by others, but seen by God for sure. Have you ever had to reckon with your own failures, your own shame, your own nakedness? Found out with your deepest flaws exposed. An experience like that is almost too much to bear. So it's no wonder that we try to hide and bluff our way through life, right? But what does God do? What does He do for the man and the woman? What does this teach us about Him? It says the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and He clothed them. See, this is important. God doesn't leave them in their nakedness. He doesn't mock them in their nakedness or say, good luck with more fig leaves. Why don't you try the poison ivy next time? Yeah. He doesn't pull out the men in black neuralizer to erase their memories and say, let's just start everything over here. We had a bad go. Let's try it again. And he certainly doesn't offer them an avocado to make it all better, like in the ridiculous Super Bowl commercial. Their shame is not undone, but it is covered. God saw their shame and their nakedness, and He covered them. He took the hide of an animal, and He clothed them. Why? Commentator Marcus Dodds writes, God deprived an animal of life that the shame of His creature might be relieved. Adam and Eve had to learn that sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing from the first sin to the last. The track of the sinner is marked with blood. What is this little moment, one sentence, what does it teach you about God? He sees you as you really are. He will take away your fig leaves of pretense, but He will also cover you. He will cover you with His garments of His own making, garments of forgiveness and His own righteousness. 
Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. What does all this mean? It means that if you will turn from using your fig leaves of success or wealth or power or religion or spirituality to compensate for your inner poverty, if you'll put them down, stop using them to hide your innermost shortcomings and be honest before God, be honest about your deep flaws, shame, and failures, then he will not leave you naked, but he will cover you with a garment of his own making. Because the skins of these animals would only be a pointer to the greater sacrifice of Jesus, who he himself would be stripped naked and endure the shame of the cross to offer you his robe of righteousness the garments of salvation, better than clothes that you would deck yourself out in on your wedding day, Isaiah says. And all that just means that you can know that your worth and acceptance and value in life is not based on you having it all together. Because despite your shame and your failures, you can know the full pardon and glad embrace of God the Father. And that be what matters most. Maybe some of you are here today and you've been feeling exposed lately. When you stop and look at your life, if you're honest, you feel like you don't have a lot to be proud of. So maybe today you need to hear this note of honor that Jesus will cover you with. Take some time now in silence as we pray to approach Christ in faith and let him clothe you again today with his garments of love and acceptance and even honor. Let's pray. A prayer for the exposed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I'm always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me. And thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it. Every evening return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. And enter heaven in it. Shining as the sun. Amen. And then last, the third note of promise.
a note of home, home. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And just like that, it, it, it trails off. This is, the, this is the first time that we've heard God self-reflect since chapter 1, when he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But in this sentence, God's train of thought in, in this passage, it's, it's cut off, which is very, very unusual for biblical writing. Usually the texts give you God finishing his thought. Uh, but not here. He trails off as if he just can't say what's, what's next. Now, I'm still left scratching my head just a bit on how all this works with Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, but it seems that God is concerned that they not continue on perpetually in their fallen condition. There seems to be something about access to the tree of life, which means they would live on and on and on in a state of wretchedness. So while exile from the garden is on one hand a just punishment and a natural consequence for their sin, it is also a divine mercy, severe though it is. It seems to at least leave the door open for future restoration that maybe one day, things could be different. Though for now, the door seems shut, locked, latched, and barred. Verses 23 through 24 say, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, paradise is lost. Mankind is driven out and kept out of the true home that we were made for. It's worth reflecting on what all exactly we lost here. I mean, the biblical author spared no expense back in chapter 2, if you remember, describing the luxurious habitat of Eden. The man and the woman walked with God in the cool of the day. They were naked and unashamed. There was every kind of tree that was beautiful and fruitful, rivers that flow through the land. But now we've lost our home. And I wonder if we've never really forgotten it. Uh, it's interesting, homesickness, uh, it's a phenomenon not just experienced by university students, psychologists tell us. Homesickness uh, is experienced by fully grown adults as well. And psychologists tell us that homesickness isn't just about missing your house. It's about missing what a good home stood for. Love, protection, security, belonging. And when these things are no longer present in a new environment, we long for them and thus we long for home. And people long for this even when they never had a good home. I wonder why. C.S. Lewis he says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency because I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter, but this is all a cheat. 
the books or music or memories, we might add, in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. For they, these memories, books, music, are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, the nagging feeling of homesickness that never quite goes away actually makes a ton of sense, and it's not a secret. You are longing for a country and a home which you've always wanted to go back to but cannot get in. And it's not just about the amenities that we lost in Eden either, but the company that we lost. Commentator John Walton says, the overwhelming loss was not paradise, it was God. He compares this to a family that might go through a divorce. He says, let's say for the sake of illustration that the dad gets to keep the luxury mansion that the family had been living in, but the mom and the kids end up living in a small two-bedroom house. The kids will definitely miss the old house and all the awesome stuff, but that's nothing compared to the loss of a relationship and presence of a father. Because a happy home isn't really about all the nice stuff. It's about the people that you share it with. Now, Derek Kidner says every detail of this last verse, verse 20, verses 23 and 24, these last verses, they underscore how inaccessible this home is to us now. That the way back in is not hard. It's impossible. Guarded by flame and by cherubim. These were awesome and fearsome throne bearers that you see pop up in other prophetic books like Ezekiel. They're also depicted on the curtain uh, in Israel's temple. And the ancient Israelite reader would not be able to miss the similarity of this last scene in Genesis 3. The way into God's presence guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword. It looks and sounds a lot like the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, God's presence, from everyone outside. I've got a picture here from a children's book that actually gets at this quite well. Uh, it's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross is the name of this little book, and we've got it here at the church if you want to borrow it. And it says, this curtain was a big keep-out sign for hundreds of years. The temple curtain reminded people that God said, it's wonderful to live with Him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. The curtain of the temple represented the way back into Eden. And it meant that the way back was still closed. You can't go back. There's no way home. Until Jesus on the cross would cry out with a loud voice and yield up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the words of the kids' book, God had ripped up the keep-out sign. And better still, by the blood of Christ, there's now a welcome mat at the entrance to Eden into making your home with God for all who would enter. So if what I'm saying is true, then you will never in this world be able to find or create your perfect home. As much as you might try, as much as we might try. And yet we so often live like we can. That maybe if I just get things right, this life will finally start to feel like home. 
But all the things that you love and long for and the home that you seek is found in him. To paraphrase St. Augustine, he said, or I'm saying, I'm changing his words, our hearts are homesick until they find a home in thee. So let's close with one final moment of prayer to help us set our hearts on the true home that's ahead. Let's pray.